0: Please open your Bibles to John chapter 15. If needed, Bibles are available under your seat. Now hear the word of the Lord from John 15, one through 17. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit.
1: It's good to be with you this morning. Let me pray for us and we can begin. Father of all grace, we come before your throne this morning and we ask for what you promise to give and that is yourself, that is your Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit that leads us into all truth, your Holy Spirit that convicts of sin, your Holy Spirit that convinces us of the righteousness of Christ, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Your word is a sharp two-edged sword that's meant to do surgery upon our souls. And we invite that surgery this morning. Father God, I am just a man. I am a sinful man. I'm prone to all the mistakes and follies of sinful men. And so I ask that you would anoint me with your Holy Spirit this morning, that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that it would be all of you, and none of me. I pray that you would anoint the ears of your people that they could hear the life-giving truth that comes from your word. I ask that you would save, that you would sanctify, that you would change every single person who desires to be changed in this room for your glory and for our good. We also want to pray for those who are sick amongst us, Lord. You know who they are, and we ask that you would heal their bodies, that you would be strength unto their bones, that you would comfort them, you would walk with them, and you would bring peace that passes all understanding to them. We pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen, amen. Well, if you are new here, we are slowly working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of John, one of the eyewitness accounts to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And today, we're looking at the first 17 verses of chapter 15. Just to catch us up really quick, this is a portion of scripture that we call the upper room discourse. Jesus is about to be betrayed by Judas and go to his death. That is just hours away now. But before he gets taken away, Jesus wants to educate his disciples on what's most important. He wants them to be prepared for what they're about to experience, and they're about to experience a lot of difficulty, a lot of pain, a lot of confusion. So last week, Jesus taught the disciples about the Holy Spirit. Jesus was going to leave them, but he would not leave them as orphans. Once Jesus returned to heaven to be with the Father, the Father and Son would send the Holy Spirit to not just be with them, but to be in them. The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete in the Greek. It means counselor, advocate, helper, and comforter. Jesus said that through the Holy Spirit, the Trinity would make their home in us. That God is love. That means when God comes into us, he brings love with him. Romans 5.5 says it like this. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. Now this is really important because this is what God does in conversion or more specifically in regeneration when he causes us to be born again. The Holy Spirit comes into our souls or our spirits and brings the love of God, the very life Of God into us, and that begins to change everything about us from the inside out. Now, if you aren't a Christian this morning, or if you are a brand new Christian, this reality is actually easy to miss. You can come into this gathering this morning or you can begin to hang out with real and genuine Christians and one of the first things you will likely notice is how different they are from you a lot of the time. They talk differently, they act differently, they spend their time differently. They actually enjoy going to church they actually enjoy giving their money away to the work of God in the world, and they spend significant amounts of time and energy trying to understand the Bible and live according to it. Now, of course, they aren't perfect. They still sin, but when they do, they repent. They ask for forgiveness instead of trying to hide it or cover it up. What I'm saying is Christians do their best to obey Jesus and follow his commands. Jesus said very specifically, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. So one of the things that is natural is when you start spending time with genuine Christians is you might want to start trying to copy them. You see that they have a loving and strong marriage. They genuinely love each other and enjoy spending time with each other. So you want that too. So you start trying to act like them in some ways. Why? Because you like what you see and you want that too. It's perfectly natural. Or maybe you see their family life. They've got a great family and their kids are joyful and obedient. They aren't perfect, but they're respectful and seem to be doing pretty well. So you might want to get some advice from them. What did you do? What's what's your tricks? What's your tactics? How does your six-year-old sit through church without causing a ruckus? See, what you're saying is, I see some of the fruit of your parenting and I would really like to see my kids act like that. Brad Wilcox, a professor of sociology and director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia, has a new book out entitled Simply Get Married. In it, it doesn't come from a specific Christian worldview, though he is actually himself a Christian. He comes from a sociological background, and he shares a ton of research and data in the book. And some of that research found that Christian couples, quote, are significantly happier in their marriages, they are less likely to end up divorced, and they are more satisfied, satisfied with their lives than any other segment of the population. As well as that, they're more likely to have children who are flourishing with better self-control, better social skills, and better approaches to learning. Now, those are just two quick examples this morning. I could go all the way down the line to every aspect of our life and character, but here's the issue, here's what I want us to see. Christianity begins in the heart. It is a fundamental change that happens inside of us that changes who we are, changes what we love, and then that internal change begins to work itself out into what we do. Now, why am I beginning my sermon with this this morning? Because if you don't understand this, Christianity will never make sense to you, nor will it ever work for you. Listen, Christianity works. It builds better people. It builds better marriages. It builds better families. It builds better societies. Christianity works. But Christianity doesn't work unless you understand where that work comes from. And it doesn't come from outside of us. It comes from inside of us. Because if you don't understand this... You won't get the marriage, you won't get the kids, you won't get the good fruit you see in the lives of genuine Christians around you if you don't understand that first and foremost, Christianity begins in the heart. Being a Christian doesn't begin with what we do, how we live or behave. It begins with God. God moves into us and when he comes into us, he brings new life. The Greek word for that was zoe. That's eternal and abundant life. And he brings that into our souls. And that new animating power, also called the Holy Spirit, that power is called dunamis. That's another, I'm, I'm lots of Greek terms this morning. But that's where we get our word dynamite from. That type of power comes into the life of a Christian and changes them one little explosion at a time for the rest of their life. And that new life comes into us when we hear and believe the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? The gospel, of course, means good news. That's what the word means. Well, what good news The good news that Jesus was the only perfect person. He was the son of God who lived a sinless life of perfection, pleasing God in every way. But instead of living in luxury or setting up a kingdom in this world, Jesus chose to exchange places with us. He willingly took our sin, and the punishment for our sin was upon himself, and he went to the cross in our place the judgment and condemnation that we deserve for sinning against the holy God, Jesus took for us. He did this so that we could go free, so that we could be forgiven of every sin and so we could be adopted into the family of God. Jesus did this so he could make us holy by sending the Holy Spirit into us, pouring the love of God into our hearts and changing us into his children who would love him back the rest of our lives. This is why our text today says in verse 13 and 14, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus shows his love for us in dying for us before we were his friends. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to hear that this morning. God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't die for us because we were good or obedient, or had made ourselves holy or acceptable to him. He died for us while we were yet sinners. That means Jesus' love for us came first. It was a one-way love, a unidirectional love, before we could ever do anything good to deserve it. That is the type of love that actually changes us. So we are sinning and giving God the middle finger and Jesus is pursuing us and loving us and dying for us. Now here's the idea. Once that reality comes to lodge itself into our psyche, into our heart of hearts, into the core of your person, The love and life of God, like a seed, begins to grow and change you from the inside out. So the first thing I want to ask you this morning is, has this happened to you? Now this happens differently for every single one of us. Sometimes it comes in suddenly, like a bolt of lightning, and sometimes it's more gradual, like the growing of a seed into a full plant. For Blaise Pascal, it was sudden. Blaise was a French mathematical genius. Who was born June 19th, 1623, and after running from God until he was 31 years old on November 23rd, 1654, at 1030 PM? You ask me, how do we know that? Well, just wait. Pascal met God and was profoundly and unshakably converted to Jesus Christ. We know exactly when it happened because he wrote it down on a piece of parchment and sewed it into his coat where it was found eight years later after he died, or eight years after that he had died. They they found it there. And here's what it said Year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd November, Feast of St. Clement from about half past 10 at night until half past an hour after midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars. He didn't meet an idea. He met God. Certitude, heartfelt joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, joy, 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 tears of joy, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from him. Well, for myself, it was a bit more gradual. (laughs) I was born into a Christian family, and I have never known a time in my life where I did not believe in God or that Jesus Christ was my savior. But as I grew up, my faith grew as well. When I was 17, I knew for certain that Jesus was my Savior, that God's love was mine through the Holy Spirit, and that I was different. Something changed in me. I still had sins and struggles and difficulties, but God was in me, and I knew there was no going back. I couldn't play the game any longer. I couldn't try to fit in any longer. I knew that something was different. In me, See, the point isn't that you have to have some kind of radical experience. The point is that you know that God has come into you and he has a plan for your life that you must follow. That's the point. And here's what we're going to see today. And this is truly revolutionary. When we are converted... God doesn't just come into us like we saw last week. We also mysteriously become united with Him. In Christian doctrine, we call this union with Christ. Through the Holy Spirit, we are spiritually united with Christ. We become one with Christ. This is why in scripture it says, when Christ died, we died. When Christ was buried, we were buried. When Christ was raised, we are raised. When Christ is seated in the heavenly places, we are seated in the heavenly places. Do I understand this? Nah. (laughs) But it's called union with Christ. Galatians three twenty six through 28 says this. For in Christ, there it is, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. You become children of God because you get placed in Christ through faith. That's how it comes, it happens through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ through the Holy Spirit and your Christian baptism, you have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. That we, yes, he doesn't obliterate all the distinctions of society. We all have different colors of skin. We all have different socioeconomic background backgrounds. We all come from different places around the globe. We still retain maleness and femaleness, but there's something more primary than all of those things, and that's not our diversity. It's our union, our unity in Christ. That's what unites us together. The blood of Christ, the body of Christ. We're united together. In his systematic theology, Louis Burkhoff defines union with Christ as this, quote, that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people, in virtue of which he is their source of life and strength, of their blessedness and salvation. So that's the doctrine that we are talking about this morning. But because Jesus is the greatest theologian to ever live, Jesus takes a complex and mysterious doctrine and this big theological concept and he makes it simple and easy for us to at least kind of get our heads around and our hearts around it this morning. You know somebody who's truly genius because they don't make you feel stupid. Well, maybe they do. They make you feel stupid and then they make it really simple. And you're like, Oh, oh, okay. And you at least walk out thinking, I think I get this. That's what Jesus does for us this morning. He says it like this in verse five. Or John 15, verse five. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is the vine. Christians are the branches. Where do branches get their source of life from? Where do branches get their energy from? Where do branches get their food from? Where do branches get their vitality from? The vine. The sole source of the branch's life and strength and fruitfulness is found in their organic connection to the vine. Think about it. You can cut off a branch from a tree and it is effectively dead or dying. So it is with us. If we are not spiritually connected to Jesus Christ, we will be unable to produce the fruit that Jesus expects of us. In other words, the Christian life is impossible without union with Christ. Sometimes I think the saddest people in the world are those who are trying to live a Christian life without the power to do it. It's all rules and commandments and thou shalt nots and no joy, no love, no power. Listen, that's like finding a dead branch on the side of the road and waiting to get an apple out of it. Picking that branch up and say, try harder little branch. Don't you know you're supposed to produce fruit? Aren't you trying hard enough? Aren't you working out out enough? Don't you have the wisdom to do this thing? What are you? That's the life of the supposed Christian who isn't united spiritually with Christ. They see the fruit of Christianity in other people's lives, and they want the fruit, but they they are unable to produce it. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. Now, we can do some good things, but we don't have the permanence. We don't have the power. If you've ever done any marriage counseling or counseling with anybody... Right, there's some, you have a hard conversation, you have some difficulty, maybe the marriage isn't going well, and you say, if this doesn't work, it's not gonna go well for you, and that person says, okay, fine, I'm gonna do it. And they go home, and they try for about two weeks. And they go right back to their normal patterns. Why? You can't change from the outside. You can't just will yourself to change. Something has got to change on the inside of you for permanent change to happen. When Christ changes us, he gives us a new power to change forever. Listen, the Christian life is all about our union with Christ, our vital connection spiritually to him. Here in our text, Jesus tells us, listen to this, at least five amazing promises that come from our union with Christ. Now, a promise is something Jesus promises to do for you. We need to lean into this. We need to understand these are blessings that come to the person who's united with Christ spiritually. The first one is fruitfulness. Look at verse five again. Whoever abides in me and I in him. That means who's united with him, who's connected with him. Look, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. This is a promise for God. If you are united with Christ, you will be living a fruitful life. Look at verse eight. By this my Father is glorified. So God gets the glory when you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Our fruitfulness brings glory to God and it proves to us and others that we're actually Christians following Jesus. Jesus was not a fan of unfruitfulness. See the fig tree, okay? He meets the fig tree, there's no fruit in season, he curses the fig tree, it dies. Just what is fruitfulness that we're here talking about though? Think about it like this. What, do, what does an apple tree produce? Apples. A grapevine? This is obvious, I know. If we are a branch with its source in Jesus, what type of fruit do we produce? Jesus fruit. <laughs> now I think of Jesus fruit, not Jesus. Uh, Terrible dad joke that's right on the tip of my tongue. but I think of Jesus' fruit in two categories. Number one is character fruit. We take on the character traits, the godliness of Jesus. This is depicted for us in Gal- by Paul in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit... Of the Spirit. In other words, the fruit that the Spirit of Christ produces in our life when He comes into us, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness self-control against such thing there is no law. In other words as we abide in Jesus the Holy Spirit begins to change us and change our character from the inside out to look more and more like Jesus. That means we, be, if we're timid, we become more courage like Jesus. If we're overly courageous, we become more gentle like Jesus. If we lack self-control, we begin to get self-control like Jesus. If we're sad, we begin to get the joy of Christ. Do you see these things? If the spirit of God is in you and you are abiding in Christ, there's a promise from God that over your lifetime, you are going to become more joyful, more peaceful, more loving, more kind, more gentle, more self-control, on and on and on we go. Is that good news? Yes, yes that's good news. So the first is character fruit. The second is Commission fruit. Commission fruit. We see this in Matthew 28. See, when I look at the life of Jesus, I don't see a guy that just walked around kind of like a monk who was just a really good, nice guy all the time. and just All he was focusing on was his character. All he was focusing on was outward signs of holiness or outward signs of virtue. That's not what he was doing. Jesus was on a mission the whole time he was here. Right, He displayed his character. He displayed the fruit of of godly living while being on a mission to make disciples. So if we are abiding in Christ, we're going to have character fruit that we're growing up into godliness, but we're also going to have commission fruit. Verse 16, Matthew 28. After Jesus has already been resurrected and returned and he's talking and teaching his disciples, he says this, That means he's accomplished his ministry and God has given him the kingdoms of men. God has given him everything. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Jesus is the rightful owner of all the earth. That means every nation should bow to him right now. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. Now listen, because of that authority... Jesus delegates work for us to do. He commissions us with his spirit to accomplish his mission. And he says this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the whole Trinity, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So make disciples, baptize them, teach them everything I taught in the scriptures. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How is he with us? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, through our union with Christ. Christ never, so that means, listen, God has called you to the Great Commission and God has equipped you with the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the Great Commission. He does not send you powerless. If you've ever had to go like door to door trying to sell something, you know you have no intrinsic power to convince the person to buy that $1,500 vacuum cleaner, (laughs) Right? And it's, it's a big ask, right? That's not the mission God has sent us on. God has sent us on a mission that he has, has all authority in heaven and earth. He knows every single person that will come to him. He knows who you are. He's called you according to his purpose. He's filled you with your, his Holy Spirit. He's sovereign, and so he's bringing people into your life who are more likely to respond to the gospel, and he is the one who's going to do the work in you and through you to accomplish his great mission. Jesus promises us if we're united with Him, we will see fruit. Fruit in our character, fruit in our commission. We'll see disciples made. This is why, as depressing as watching the news is, I'm not depressed. Because Jesus has all authority and He is building His church right now. He is not going to be defeated, He is not going to fail. So the first one is fruit. God promises that those that abide in him will produce fruit. Secondly, in these next four, I'm just gonna hit on briefly. Five points is a lot for me. (laughs) Look at verse seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He repeats it again in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. It should last. It's eternal fruit. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. As Christians, we have a promise from God that God will hear and answer our prayers when they are in line with his will. We know this because Jesus said when he was confronted and just hours away now, when he's about to be betrayed and he's about to be crucified, he says, Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. That means even Jesus said, here's, remember, Jesus as a human being, has two wills. He has the will of the Father, the will of God, and he has his human will. And his human will said, I don't want to die right now. This is going to be really difficult in one sense, but what I want more than my, my present peace and happiness and health, what I want more is for your will to be done. So this is not some kind of blank check that Christians get to write in their prayers. Right? You can go through the new car lot and you could name it and claim it all you want. <laughs> That's not what he's talking about. Right? He's talking about fruitfulness, yeah. character, commission. Yeah. Pray for your children. Expect their salvation. Pray for your neighbor. Expect their salvation. Pray for internal growth in godliness and expect God to do the work that he promises to do. Yeah. Answered prayers, the second one. Third one, verse nine and 10. "As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide. Abide. Rest. Stay connected. Don't cut yourself off. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in His love. The third promise here is an abiding love. A love that will never be taken from you. A love that is eternal. A love that you might feel this much now, but one day it's going to feel like absolute rapture when you're in the presence of God. A love that can never fade. It can never dim. An abiding love an eternal love. Fourth, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Do you hear this? The Christian life is a promise of joy. Joy. God doesn't want a bunch of sad kids, right? Who've got the <laughs> the rule list on the refrigerator that hits the floor and runs down through the dining room. Just chores, just nonstop chores. What does he want for us? Just keep going back to the list. When you finished one, hit the next one. He promises us a joyful life. Psalm 16 tells us at his right hand are pleasures forevermore and eternal joy. He is the source of all joy and he promises to give us joy when we abide in him. That's good news. Yes, weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. As surely as the sun rises, joy comes in the morning. Number five. So let me just say, two was answered prayer, three was abiding love, four was fullness of joy. Fullness. He wants our cup full and running over of joy. Number five is friendship with Jesus. Look at verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Not just servants, not just slaves, not just obedient ones but friends through the gospel. Aren't these amazing promises for us as Christians? That we can live a new life empowered by God to produce fruit, have our prayers heard and answered by God, that we can have a fullness of joy that no one outside of Christ can ever experience, and that we can be truly friends of Jesus. This is the best news ever. This is human flourishing at its highest level. Can you imagine what our city would look like if it was full of people who were abiding in Christ? If people who had this type of love and this type of life on the inside of them and they were bearing fruit like this, what would our city look like? But, friends, and this is a big but here, it comes with a catch. Maybe it's not a catch, but at least it's a cost. And the cost is a cutting. Look at verse one. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Here's the picture. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches, And the father is the vine dresser. Here's the one thing you need to know about the vine dresser. He's the man with the shears in his hand. And a good vine dresser knows exactly what to cut off. And in our text today, we see two types of branches that get cut. One gets totally cut off and thrown away and the other gets cut but it's called pruned. But like it or not, everyone gets cut. Every human being will experience the shears. Let's look at these two types of branches together. Verse 2 Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the vine dresser, takes away. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Here's what Jesus is saying you can grow up in church you can grow up in a Christian nation you can call yourself a Christian but if you are not abiding in Christ if you are not spiritually united to Christ and vitally connected to him and that vital connection being evidenced by fruit of character and commission you may not be a Christian and everyone who is not in Christ will be cut off and thrown away And when Christ judges us on the last day, you will be grouped together with other dead branches and thrown into the fire. That's hell. Why? Because you rejected Jesus, your only hope for salvation. You said, nope, I don't need to be connected to the vine. I can do it on my own. Watch me produce fruit. But then we see a second kind of cutting, that of pruning. Look at verse two, the second half of verse two. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Oh, wow, what a great promise. <laughs> if you're being fruitful, here come the shears. That's a great promise. It is, actually. not feel great but it is great every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit now notice here that these branches are producing fruit they're productive now we don't know how productive that might be really small fruit that might be barely noticeable fruit That might not be healthy fruit, infected with disease or something. We don't really know. But there's fruit nonetheless and God can tell the difference between the branches that are producing fruit and the branches that are not producing fruit. The vine dresser may be the only one who can tell the difference between these two branches. God knows who are his and what does God do as a good vine dresser? Listen to this. He sees the fruitful branches and he starts cutting away everything that isn't beneficial to producing good fruit. Now, can I just say, from our perspective as a branch, you see someone approaching you with shears, immediately you want to hide things, right? He, what, this guy is trying to kill us. Cutting always causes pain. And I've told this story before, but I think it's helpful. A few years ago, my neighbor had an apple tree in her backyard, and it produced some pretty good apples, and my kids loved to climb the tree and eat of its fruit. We loved that tree. But then she had an arborist come by one day, and it was actually her boyfriend, so I wasn't confident he knew what he was doing. <laughs> and I came home after work, and the tree looked like it had been hacked to death. The whole top had been cut off. All kinds of branches were missing. It had stuff oozing out of all the cuts. And I am sure that if trees could talk, it would have been singing me a country song. (laughs) Listen, it lost its leaves, it lost its branches, it's lost its fruit, it lost its joy, okay? It lost years off of its life. See, listen, and, and what was funny was that year, after that happened, that tree barely produced one apple. So my family, my kids, myself, we were, we were looking outside and we were going, that guy was a moron. He ruined that tree. We didn't, get, we didn't get one good apple. No apple pies, no apple crisp. We got nothing from this thing all year. But yeah, it kind of looks a little better, but... This guy didn't know what he was doing. But then the next year, something amazing happened. The remaining branches produced so much fruit that they were literally drooping to the ground. We didn't even have to climb the tree. We could just walk up, pick it from right here. It was hand delivering. It was Instacart, straight to our hands. (laughs) See, I was wrong the guy did know what he was doing. And if he was going to maximize the tree's output, the tree's fruitfulness, he had to prune it. He had to cut away the things that were not necessary. My grandpa lives in Alabama and he loves to, t- he knows everything about trees and he just calls these little things that are pup. He said, That's a sucker. That's a sucker. What do you do with suckers? You cut them off. It's sucking nutrients out of the tree. You just cut those things off. Jesus says, if you are abiding in him, if you are a real genuine Christian, that's what he's doing in your life right now and he promises to do it until he comes again or you die and go and be with him. The shears never leave his hand. He is in process of cutting away the things that aren't helping you produce good fruit. Can I just say, trees can't do this on their own, right? <laughs> trees can't just will one of these guys. Ah! trees just produce and they need something from the outside to come in and cut away. We can't do it on our own. We need God to bring his shears into our life. This could be sinful patterns in your life. God starts cutting them away. God starts challenging. How does he do that? Through texts of Scripture, through reading the text. Ooh, his word is a two-edged sword through sermons through podcasts through relationships God has shears in his hand and he's not just clapping at everything you do yes he applauds the good things and he's also I'm going to cut that later he got three apples praise God for that I'm going to cut that sucker branch off though. It might be your favorite sucker branch. I'm going to cut it off. He's going to cut away the things that aren't helping you produce good fruit. That could be relationships this is one of the most Jesus speaks of it often if they hated me Jesus says they will hate you sometimes mothers and brothers and sisters will rise up and, and, and pull away from you and hate you within your own family and that could be one of the most painful realities best friends that you grew up with and you thought you'd always be together you come to Christ you start producing fruit God starts changing you from the inside and he might cut off that relationship it's a promise in his word That could also be false beliefs. We grow up thinking the world works a certain way. We find ourselves with certain theological beliefs and philosophical beliefs and political beliefs, and we want to hold on to these beliefs. And sometimes we can't hold on to these beliefs and Christ at the same time. He starts cutting these beliefs out away from us. That's hard, that's difficult. I've always been this way. I've always believed this way. I'm just from here. I'm just from there. This is what we believe. Well, you are in Christ now. That changes everything. That could be idols. Idols. Yes. Things you are worshiping more than Jesus. Anything that means more to you, your life, your meaning, your existence, your happiness, your joy than Christ. That thing is an idol. And God likes to idol block us. One of his favorite things is to knock over our idols and watch it smash on the floor. So if you worship money, he might smash that idol. He could do it in more ways than one. If you worship another person, he might cut that relationship off. God loves us too much to allow us to worship anything less than him. And listen, here's what I want us to see. This is painful. This isn't simple. This isn't easy. It hurts. But what I want us to see this morning is it hurts, but it's for our good. It's for our long-term happiness. It's for our joy. See, many people want a God who will help them in their life but they can't stand a God who would cut them. Any so-called God that would accept you as you are and not change you, not cut some things out of your life is a figment of your imagination. He would be a God with the exact preferences that you have. That's a God in your image. In effect, a God that would only serve your purposes. That's called an idol and you would be God. I want a God that has all the political preferences that I have. You can make that into your image. It could be an elephant or a donkey. It doesn't matter. But it's a false God. The real God is a vine dresser he cuts off and he throws away or he prunes and here's the gospel good news again Jesus the most fruitful man to have ever lived a man who didn't just have good godly character or or have a little bit of mission that impacted his family and his friends 2,000 years ago, but whose fruit is still being tasted and seen today here this morning, the most fruitful man to ever live, the most fruitful branch to ever produce any fruit was cut off on the cross so that we could be grafted in. Did you hear that? Jesus was cut off like a fruitless branch so that we could be grafted in to produce fruit and to be pruned for greater fruitfulness for the rest of our lives. What love, what joy, what hope. That comes only through Christ. We heard it comes Through faith. What does that mean? That means you believe that Jesus was who he said he was. He did what he said he did. And he's here now and offering himself to you. And you say, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, fire, come into me. And bring me into you. Graft me into your vine. Help me abide in your love. Abide in me. And God will do that this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your grace. You didn't have to do this, but you chose to. Give us the faith to believe when you cut away that you are not trying to kill us, you are not trying to destroy us, you are not trying to wreck us and mess us up. You're trying to heal. You're trying to promote life You're trying to produce greater fruitfulness in our character and in our commission. God, we want to be a fruitful church. We want to be a fruitful Christians. And we know and we confess we cannot do this on our own. In our own, we can do nothing. So Christ in us, Would you confirm this through the Lord's Supper? Would you remind us that we are united with Christ and everything good in us and through us comes from him, the spirit of the living God producing fruit for his glory and our joy. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had supper with his disciples and he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, broken for you. He said, eat it in remembrance of me. This proclaims my death until I come again. And he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of my new covenant that we will not be counted according to our own sins but counted righteous because of the perfect work of Christ. We are to share this meal and remind ourselves and remind each other that we have been united with Christ. Christ in a life like his, in a death like his, in a resurrection like his, in a glorification like his. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of this bread, which we confess provides us with the body of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask you to enable us to eat of it in faith and to be made more fully members of his heavenly body through Christ our Lord. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of this wine which we confess provides us with the blood of your son, our savior. We ask you to enable us to drink of it in faith and be conformed more and more to the image of his death through Christ our Lord. We pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.